Welcome back to the Foundations Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Link. Last time we talked about the importance of having a biblical worldview, and we looked at the life of Lot. Um, In a few minutes, we're going to do some exercises with some issues, and we're going to walk through how exactly we develop a biblical worldview about issues. But first, a short advertisement. If you're interested in seeing how kids are developing the skills to defend their faith, how they learn to research and know what they believe and why. If you're interested in homeschooling or you like watching junior high or high school students work to improve through competition, then check out my documentary film called If My Judges Are Ready. It's a competitive speech and debate documentary, and it's available on Amazon Prime, Christian Cinema, and other streaming platforms. Visit speechdebatedoc.com for more information. That's speechdebatedoc, as in D-O-C, documentary film, Dot com. All right, now, uh, before we get into the rest of the episode, let's review a couple of points about a biblical worldview. And the first one, of course, being what exactly is a worldview? And it's a way of viewing the world, obviously. And we all have a unique worldview, and your worldview has been built by your experiences from your entire life. Everything you've ever learned and felt and seen has influenced your worldview. And you can consciously change your worldview. You might realize that you hold an opinion that's not correct or that you've been wrong about a way of looking at things. You're not stuck with your worldview. You can change it. In fact, it is changing all the time as you learn and process new information and experiences. So why is it important to have a biblical worldview? Well, part of that answer depends on how you view the Bible. I've said this before. I believe that the Bible is God's written message to all of mankind. It is the single most important group of documents in all of history. I believe it was inspired and inerrant in the original manuscripts, and the message of the Bible has been supernaturally preserved and communicated across the ages to the church of today. I believe it is 100% possible to read reliable translations of the biblical text today and know what God wanted us to know when he inspired the original documents. I believe that the most reliable method for knowing the truth that God has communicated to us is through studying the Bible. And if I believe something and it's contrary to what the Bible teaches, then I am in error, not the Bible. And the Bible is the plumb line. Now, plumb lines work because gravity is constant. The Bible can be trusted. It is a plumb line for truth because the God who inspired it is constant. We talked about that a lot in a previous episode. We can trust the Bible, the written word of God, because of the nature of who God is. If the God who inspired the Bible is constant, then the truth in the Bible does not change. So how can we develop a biblical worldview? This podcast is about that very thing, and here we are in the fourth episode, and we are finally going to talk about how you do it. So these principles and uh, practices, they didn't start with me. I'm pulling from lots of sermons, lots of articles, lots of experiences from other people, okay? But generally, here is how you develop a biblical worldview. The basics of developing a biblical worldview are, number one, read it. Number two, trust it. Number three, use it. I know that's in its most simplistic terms. This is how you do it. Read it, trust it, use it. 
So number one, to have a biblical worldview, you must know the Bible. You must study it. You must read it. You must understand and be able to answer the question, what is being revealed in its pages? And number two, you have to trust that the truth revealed in those pages is constant and still applies to you today. And number three, then you actually have to use the understanding of that truth to evaluate what you see, hear, and experience. You need to filter it through your understanding of the truth that you have gleaned from the Bible. You make a conscious choice to filter the ideas and experiences of your life through what you know to be true in the Bible. Now, the Berean Jews in Acts 17 did this. It says in Acts 17, 11, they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And as a result, when they heard the truth in Paul's preaching, they believed. A biblical worldview does not mean that you never change your mind or that you're closed-minded. It means that you filter things through the Bible. In fact, having a biblical worldview and studying the Bible and learning how to view the world will actually end up in you being more willing to change your mind in order to conform to the Bible more closely. So here's a couple of principles as we move forward. First, uh, the Bible does not contain all truth. And the Bible doesn't disagree with things that are true. For instance, the Bible does not mention penicillin, and it doesn't say penicillin is good or bad, right? But the Bible may have something to say about helping the sick and the hurting. The Bible's purpose is not to list all of the all. The Bible's purpose is not to list all of the things in the world that are true and designate them as good or bad. Instead, it tells us a story of how man fell into sin and became separated from God, how God has made a way to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ, and how we can live a holy life pleasing to the creator of the universe. When the things you believe are true are in conflict with the Bible, you are either misinterpreting the Bible or you believe something that is not true. If you have evidence the Bible is wrong, then you have misinterpreted the evidence or misinterpreted the Bible. Now, that's a very rigid and dogmatic approach. Yes, it is. What I believe the Bible teaches may be wrong. And what I believe is reality may be wrong. But the Bible is the true message from God to mankind. It is the plumb line. It is always true because God does not change. Now, that truth might make me uncomfortable, it might make me unpopular, but that doesn't make it less true. So the basic outline of how to approach a subject or issue. Um, first, you identify, um, then you look at scripture, then you look at others, then you do some self-reflection, and you listen to the Holy Spirit. Number one, identify the issue clearly. Make sure that what you're looking at is actually the root issue. Number two, Scripture. Does the Bible address this? And if so, what does it say? Does it address it directly? Does it address it indirectly? Others, don't interpret Scripture in a vacuum. Lots of very smart people have been studying the Bible for centuries. And let me pause here for a second. For thousands of years, very smart people have been studying and interpreting Scripture. Why would you not examine what those who have gone before have found? And sometimes it can be very helpful for 
really difficult issues to read differing points of view and, and see how different people have interpreted hard passages of Scripture. Do not ignore what others have done. So number four, self-reflection. Is there anything in your own life hindering you from accepting the truth? Anything in your past experiences, any predispositions, um, any things that you've learned or been taught? Number five, the Holy Spirit. Is there checking your spirit about adopting this concept, about making this decision? Is there sin in your own life that you need to deal with? So that's the pattern. That's the process. You faithfully work through that, and you end up with a biblical perspective about an issue. Now, here's the thing. Well-meaning, good Christian people end up with different ideas and interpretations and opinions about issues. Some issues are complicated and nuanced. I mean, you, you may not be able to sum them up in that social media post. We may not all end up in agreement, and that's okay. We are all working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as referenced in Philippians 2. What may be clear to some of us may not be clear to others. We all have different pasts, different backgrounds, different perspectives. We're all trying to make those perspectives more closely aligned to what the Bible teaches. Trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth through the study of the Bible to us all, eventually, as long as we approach it openly. So now we're going to work through a few of these issues. And do not take what I say as fact. Do, do your own study. Do the work. Study to show yourself approved. It is important to know what and why you believe what you believe. And you do not have to agree with me. But your opinion better be based on what you think the Bible teaches. And your view should not contradict what the Bible teaches. Okay, for the sake of time, we're about to quickly walk through some issues. And uh, I'll walk you through these steps pretty quickly. And I will not spend a lot of time on each one. And I'm not going to read a lot of stuff from others in the others step. So I'm just going to summarize what I found before. As always, do your own research. So let's work through an easy one. All right. So it says a moral principle. Murder is wrong. Okay. So let's identify the issue. We're talking about murder. Not war, not execution, not self-defense, murder. Well, Scripture, what does Scripture say? Genesis teaches that all men are made in the image of God. Exodus explicitly says in chapter 20 during the Ten Commandments that murder is wrong. Jesus says in Matthew 22 that the second greatest commandment is to love others as yourself, and murder violates that. Okay? Others, uh, historically, we won't list everything out, but historically scholars have always interpreted these passages as saying murder is wrong. Self-reflection. Is there anything in our life that's coloring this view, any personal sin or past experience preventing us from accepting it? And the Holy Spirit, is there any check in your spirit about accepting this concept? Do we have a biblical worldview about murder? The answer is probably yes. We probably all have a biblical worldview about murder. But here are some harder ones. So um, your boss asks you to do a task. It violates the law but people do it all the time without punishment. So here's the issue. What is the issue? Is it okay to break the law if you won't get caught slash punished and your supervisor, your boss, asks you to do it? Okay, so here's a bunch of scriptures that deal with this sort of stuff. Romans 13, 1 to 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Proverbs 28.6, better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. And Proverbs 21.3, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Let's read that one again. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now, there are uh, several biblical examples of people violating man's law to support God's principles. Uh, Daniel, uh, he actually ended up in the lion's den for not um, doing what his the authorities told him to do. Esther violated the king's law, went to the king and pled for her people. Moses' mother violated an evil decree from the Pharaoh to kill children, and she saved her child. Uh, in the book of Acts, there are many, many times that the authorities tell believers not to preach, and they go on to preach. So this seems to say that we should obey man's law unless doing so violates God's purposes or God's laws. So others... Scholars uh, that we've looked at, they agree with this idea. You should obey man's law unless it conflicts with God's purposes. Self-reflection. Well, sometimes it's easier to go along and get along. No one wants to be the whistleblower. No one wants to get fired. And it's hard to trust that God's going to provide if refusing to do what your boss has asked you to do might cause you to lose your job, lose status, miss out on that promotion, miss out on that raise. But is that a reason not to do what Scripture shows? So in the Spirit, any check on your spirit in this? Like, is your life and what you want to do consistent with what you understand Scripture teaches? Okay, so another one. Entertainment shows extramarital sexual behavior as good and acceptable, is it? So the issue, is sex outside of marriage good and acceptable? So let's look at some Scripture. Exodus 20.14, do not commit adultery. If you're in marriage, you shouldn't be having sex outside of it. Uh, Hebrews 13.4, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Other translations actually have this, and it, it talks about how marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and other and adulteries, adulterers. And I've heard some people teach that keeping the marriage bed pure and undefiled actually extends beyond when you're married, but also when you're not married. 
you should save the marriage bed for the marriage. Uh, and of course, the marriage bed, of course, really talking about sexual relationships. You've heard the law of Moses says, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, even one who looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery in his heart. Matthew 5, 27. That's Jesus saying that. Don't go near the door of her, the immoral woman's house. If you do, you will lose your honor and hand over to merciless people everything you've achieved in life. And afterward, you will groan in anguish when disease consumes your body. Proverbs 5, 8, and 9. Very graphic uh, warning about um, going to the immoral woman's house and having sex with her. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. In 1 Corinthians 6. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. And then here's Matthew 19 with Jesus explaining what marriages should be. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Again, you leave your father and mother and you're joined to your wife, not to the person that you're dating before you get married. Others, historically, scholars have agreed that these passages and others say that sex outside of biblical marriage is sin. So self-reflection, what sins, what, what past history make it hard to accept this as true? Is there anything, any past guilt or viewpoint that might be influencing your ideas on this? When you see these television shows and these movies and read these books that present this as truth, are you filtering them? And the Holy Spirit, like what's the Holy Spirit telling you about your own relationship with God? What's the Holy Spirit telling you about your past and about um, the plans that you have for the future? Okay, so uh, another one. This is uh, relevant to the upcoming elections. What qualities should I vote for in a civil servant? I'm going to stop here for a second. I think a lot of times people vote their fears, and I think you should vote your values. So let's identify this. These are civil servants. They're not pastors or elders. That means that all the scriptural stuff talking about what it takes to be a pastor or an elder um, doesn't apply here. We're not talking about those folks. Not that those are bad people and wouldn't make great civil servants, um, but it's just a different standard. And so scripture, to my knowledge... There is no passage which specifically commands what type of person we should elect. There are no prescriptive passages, but there are a couple of descriptive passages. Not prescriptive, telling us what we should do, but descriptive, telling us what was done. Exodus 18.21, But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, in Deuteronomy 1.13, choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. So in the Exodus passage, Moses needed help dealing with silver matters, with disagreements among the people, and Jethro, his father-in-law, suggested looking for these qualities in the people selected to help. 
One, God-fearing. They need to have a healthy respect for God and the things of God. Two, trustworthy. They were faithful, honest. They could be relied upon. And three, hating dishonest gain. These were people of integrity. Similar situation in Deuteronomy when God told Moses what sort of people to choose. Um, he said, choose the wise, people who are not just knowledgeable, but also wise. They need to have understanding, people who could understand the situation they were providing over and be respected, people who have earned the respect of the community. I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty smart list of qualities to look for in any candidate for any office. God-fearing, trustworthy, hates dishonest gain, wise, understanding, respected. Now, the book of Proverbs is also full of wisdom about civil authorities. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor in 28.16. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Proverbs 29.2. If a ruler listens to a falsehood, all of his officials will be wicked. Think about that one for a minute. If a ruler listens to falsehood, then all of his officials will be wicked. Because who would still be left? Proverbs 29.12. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 11.14. Wicked behavior is detestable to kings, since a throne is established through righteousness. 16.12. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Proverbs 28, 2. There's also lots of passages talking about how God is in control, regardless of who's elected. Uh, Romans 8, 28. And for we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Okay, so that's some scripture. Let's look at others. Scholars agree that God is in control. Now, there is no one I know that says that these passages demand voting a certain way for a certain party. And in modern history, there is some disagreement about the role of Christians in politics. Frankly, there's quite a bit of pragmatism in our theology about this issue. Self-reflection, I will freely admit I have my own opinions about this issue, and since there is not specific commands about what I should do, figuring out what position to hold is a process, one that I've changed over my life. And the Holy Spirit, we all need to be very open to the Holy Spirit about this because it is not black and white in the text. Now, I know this is supposed to be the way you can be sure of what to think, right? But it's not that simple. Life is way more nuanced than that. The process of developing a biblical worldview takes time, and your perspective will change as you grow in your faith. The key is to keep reading the Bible, keep trusting it, keep using it to help you figure out how to view the world. Developing a biblical worldview is critical, and it is a lifelong process. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Next week, we'll actually dig into how to study the Bible and understand it. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, leave us a five-star rating. That helps other people find the podcast. If you didn't enjoy the podcast, well, I'm sorry. And uh, feel free to send me an email and complain. Or if you have questions, you can also send me an email and maybe I can answer them on a later show. Send them to scott at scottlinkmedia.com. Thanks, and I will talk to you next time.